This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today, Chapter 5, from Mr. Stanfast, by John Buchan. Various Doings in the West. And now, Chapter 5. The Tobermory was no ship for passengers. Its decks were littered with a hundred oddments, so that a man could barely walk a step without tacking and my bunk was simply a shelf in the frowsty little saloon, where the odor of ham and eggs hung like a fog. I joined her at Greenock, and took a turn on deck with the captain after tea, when he told me the names of the big blue hills to the north. He had a fine old copper-colored face and side-whiskers like an archbishop, and, having spent all his days beating up the western seas, had as many yarns in his head as Peter himself. On this boat, he announced, we don't ken what a day may bring forth. I may put into Colonze for two hours and bide there for three days. I get a telegram at Oban, and the next thing I'm away, out to Barra. Sheep's the difficult business. They maun to be fetched for the sails, and they're doomed slow to lift. So you see, it's not what you call a pleasure trip, Mr. Brand. Indeed it wasn't, for the confounded tub wallowed like a fat sow as soon as we rounded a headland and got the weight of the southwestern wind. When asked my purpose... I explained that I was a colonial of Scots extraction who was paying his first visit to his fatherland and wanted to explore the beauties of the West Highlands. I let him gather that I was not rich in this world's goods. "'You'll have to have a passport,' he asked. "'They'll no let you go north. "'They'll no let you go north to Fort William without one.' Amos had said nothing about passports, so I looked blank. "'I could keep you on board for the whole voyage,' he went on. "'but you wouldn't have been permitted to land. "'If you're seeking enjoyment, "'it would be a poor job sitting on this deck "'and admiring the works of God "'and not even be allowed to step on the pierhead. "'You should have applied to the military gentleman in Gleska. "'But you've plenty of time to make up your mind "'before we get to Oban. "'We've a heap of calls to make. "'Mullen Isley way.' "'The purser came up to inquire about my ticket "'and greeted me with a grin. "'So you're acquainted with Mr. Gresson, then,' "'said the captain. "'Well,' We're a cheery wee ship's company, and that's the great thing on this kind of job. I made but a poor supper, for the wind had risen to half a gale, and I saw hours of wretchedness approaching. The trouble with me is that I cannot be honestly sick and get it over. Queasiness and headache beset me, and there's no refuge for me but bed. I turned into my bunk, leaving the captain and the mate smoking shag not six feet from my head, and fell into a restless sleep. When I woke the place was empty. "'and smelt vilely of stale tobacco and cheese. "'My throbbing brows made sleep impossible, "'and I tried to ease them by staggering upon deck. 
I saw a clear windy sky with every star as bright as a live coal, and a heaving waste of dark waters running to ink-black hills. And then a bit of spray caught me and sent me down the companion to my bunk again, where I lay for hours trying to make a plan of campaign. I argued that if Amos had wanted me to have a passport, he would have provided one, so I needn't bother my head about that. But it was my business to keep alongside Gresson, and if the boat stayed a week in some port and he went offshore, I must follow him. Having no passport, I would have to be always dodging trouble, which would handicap my movements, and in all likelihood make me more conspicuous than I wanted. I guessed that Amos had denied me the passport for the very reason that he wanted Gresson to think me harmless. The area of danger would, therefore, be the passport country, somewhere north of Fort William. But to follow Gresson, I must run risk and enter that country. His suspicions, if he had any, would be lulled if I left the boat at Oban, but it was up to me to follow overland to the north and hit the place where the Tobermory made a long stay. The confounded tub had no plans. She wandered about the West Highlands looking for sheep and things, and the captain himself could give me no timetable of her voyage. It was incredible that Gresson should take all this trouble if he did not know that at some place, and the right place, he would have time to get a spell ashore. But I could scarcely ask Gresson for that information, though I determined to cast a wary fly over him. I knew roughly the Tobermory's course, to the sound of Islay to Collinsay, then up the east side of Mull to Oban, then through the sound of Mull to the islands with names like Cocktails, Rum and Egg, and Call, then to Sky, then for the Outer Hebrides. I thought the last would be the place, and it seemed madness to leave the boat, for the Lord knew how I should get across the Minch. This consideration upset all my plans again, and I fell into a troubled sleep without coming to any conclusion. Morning found us nosing between Jura and Islay, and about midday we touched at a little port where we unloaded some cargo and took on a couple of shepherds who were going to Colonsay. The mellow afternoon and the good smell of salt and heather got rid of the dregs of my queasiness, and I spent a profitable hour on the pierhead with a guidebook called Badley's Scotland, and one of Bartholomew's maps. I was beginning to think that Amos might be able to tell me something, for a talk with the captain had suggested that the Tobermory would not dally long in the neighborhood of rum and egg. The big droving season was scarcely on yet, and sheep for the Oban market would be lifted on the return journey. In that case, Sky was the first place to watch, and if I could get wind of any big cargo waiting there, I would be able to make a plan. Amos was somewhere near the Kyle, and that was across the narrows from Sky. Looking at the map, it seemed to me that, in spite of being passportless, I might be able somehow to make my way up through Morvern and Artsegg to the latitude of Sky. The difficulty would be to get across the strip of sea, but there must be boats to beg, borrow, or steal. I was pouring over badly when Gresson sat down beside me. He was in a good temper and disposed to talk, and to my surprise his talk was all about the beauties of the countryside. There was a kind of apple-green light over everything. The steep heather hills cut into the sky like purple amethyst, while beyond the straits the western ocean stretched its pale molten gold to the sunset. Gresson waxed lyrical over the scene. "'This just about puts me right inside, Mr. Brand. "'I've got to get away from that little old town pretty frequent "'or I begin to molt like a canary. "'A fan feels like a man when he gets to a place "'that smells as good as this. "'Why in hell do we ever get messed up in those stone and lime cages? "'I reckon some day I'll pull my freight for a clean location "'and settle down there and make little poems. "'This place would about content me. 
"'and there's a spot out in California on the coast ranges "'that I've been keeping my eye on.' "'The odd thing was that I believe he meant it. "'His ugly face was lit up with a serious delight. "'He told me he had taken this voyage before, "'so I got out badly and asked for advice. "'I can't spend too much time on holidaying,' I told him, "'and I want to see all the beauty spots, "'but the best of them seem to be in the area "'that this fool British government won't let you into without a passport. "'I suppose I shall have to leave you at Oban.' "'It's too bad,' he said, sympathetically. "'Well, they tell me there's some pretty sights around Oban.' "'And he thumbed the guidebook and began to read about Glencoe. "'I said that was not my purpose, "'and pitched him a yarn about Prince Charlie "'and how my mother's great-grandfather played some kind of part in that show. "'I told him I wanted to see the place where the prince landed "'and where he left for France. "'So far as I can make out, that won't take me into passport country, "'but I'll have to do a bit of foot-slogging. "'Well, I'm used to patting the hoof. "'I must get the captain to put me off in Morverne.' "'and then I can foot it round the top of Lowshiel "'and get back to Oban through Appen. "'How's that for a holiday trick?' "'He gave the scheme his approval. "'But if it was me, Mr. Bran, "'I would have a shot at puzzling your gallant policeman. "'You and I don't take much stock in governments "'and their two-cent laws, "'and it would be a good game to see how "'just how far you could get into the forbidden land. "'A man like you could put up a good bluff "'on those hayseeds. "'I don't mind having a bet. "'No,' I said. "'I'm out for a rest, and not for sport. If there was anything to be gained, I'd undertake to bluff my way to the Orkney Islands. But it's a wearing job, and I have better things to think about. So, well, enjoy yourself your own way. I'll be sorry when you leave us, for I owe you something for saving me in that rough house, and besides there's darn little company in the old moss-back captain. That evening Gresson and I swapped yarns after supper to the accompaniment of Ma Goad, and Isn't It Possible, of Captain and Mate. I went to bed after a glass or two of weak grog and made up for the last night's vigil by falling sound asleep. I had very little kit with me, beyond what I stood up and could carry in my waterproof pockets, but on Amos's advice I'd brought my little nickel-bladed revolver. This lived by day in my hip pocket, but at night I put it behind my pillow. When I woke next morning to find us casting anchor in the bay below rough low hills, which I knew to be the island of Collinsay, I could find no trace of the revolver. I searched every inch of the bunk and only shook out feathers from the moldy ticking. I remembered perfectly putting the thing behind my head before I went to sleep, and now it had vanished utterly. Of course, I could not advertise my loss, and I didn't greatly mind it, for this was not a job where I could do much shooting, but it made me think a good deal about Mr. Gresson. He simply could not suspect me. If he had bagged my gun, as I was pretty certain he had, it must be because he wanted it for himself, "'and not that he might disarm me. "'Every way I argued, I reached the same conclusion. "'In Gresson's eyes, I must seem as harmless as a child. "'We spent the better part of a day at Collinsay, "'and Gresson, so far as his duties allowed, "'stuck to me like a limpet. "'Before I went ashore, I wrote out a telegram for Amos. "'I devoted a hectic hour to the Pilgrim's progress, "'but I could not compose any kind of intelligible message "'with reference to its text.' We all had the same edition, the one in the Golden Treasury series, so I could have made up a sort of cipher by referring to lines and pages, but that would have taken up a dozen telegraph forms and seemed to me too elaborate for the purpose. So I sent this message. Octorloni, Post Office, Kyle. I hope to spend part of holiday near you and to see you if boat's program permits. Are any good cargoes waiting in your neighborhood? Reply, Post Office, 
Oban. It was highly important that Gresson should not see this, but it was the deuce of a business to shake him off. I went for a walk in the afternoon along the shore and passed the telegraph office, but the confounded fellow was with me all the time. My only chance was just before we sailed, when he had to go on board to check some cargo. As the telegraph office stood full in view of the ship's deck, I didn't go near it. But in the back end of the clayton I found the schoolmaster and got him to promise to send the wire. I also bought off him a couple of well-worn seven-penny novels. The result was that I delayed our departure for ten minutes, and when I came on board, faced a wrathful Gresson. "'Where the hell have you been?' he asked. "'The weather's blowing up dirty, and the old man's mad to get off. Didn't you get your legs stretched enough this afternoon?' I explained humbly that I had been to the schoolmaster to get something to read, and produced by dingy red volumes. At this his brow cleared. I could see that his suspicions were set at rest. We left Collinsay about six in the evening with the sky behind us banking for a storm, and the hills of Jura to starboard an angry purple. Collinsay was too low an island to be any kind of breakwater against a western gale, so the weather was bad from the start. Our course was north by east, and when we had passed the butt-end of the island we nosed about in the trough of big seas, shipping tons of water and rolling like a buffalo. I know as much about boats as about Egyptian hieroglyphics, but even my landsman's eyes could tell that we were in for a rough night. I was determined not to get queasy again, but when I went below the smell of tripe and onions promised to be my undoing, so I dined off a slab of chocolate and a cabin biscuit, put on my waterproof, and resolved to stick it out on deck. We'll return to our story right after these sponsor messages. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Life's better with American Family Insurance. Because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. And now, back to our story. I took up position near the bows, where I was out of reach of those oily steamer smells. It was as fresh as the top of a mountain, but mighty cold and wet, for a gusty drizzle had set in and I got the spin drift of the big waves. There I balanced myself as we lurched into the twilight, hanging on with one hand to a rope which descended from the stumpy mast. I noticed that there was only an indifferent rail between me and the edge, but that interested me and helped to keep off sickness. I swung to the movement of the vessel, and though I was mortally cold, it was rather pleasant than otherwise. My notion was to get the nausea whipped out of me by the weather, and when I was properly tired, to go down and turn in. I stood there till the dark had fallen. By that time I was an automaton, the way a man gets on sentry go, and I could easily have hung on till morning. My thoughts ranged about the earth, beginning with the business I had set out on, and presently, by way of recollections of Blinkiron and Peter, reaching the German forest where, in the Christmas of 1915, 
I had been nearly done in by fever and old stum. I remembered the bitter cold of that wild race, and the way the snow seemed to burn like fire when I stumbled and got my face into it. I reflected that seasickness was kitten's play to a good bout of malaria. The weather was growing worse, and I was getting more than spindrift from the seas now. I hooked my arm around the rope, where my fingers were numbing. Then I fell to dreaming again, principally about Fossey Maynard and Mary Lamington. This so ravished me that I was as good as asleep. I was trying to reconstruct the picture as I had last seen her at Biggleswick Station. A heavy body collided with me and shook my arm from the rope. I slithered across the yard of deck, engulfed in a whirl of water. One foot caught a stanchion of the rail, and it gave with me, so that for an instant I was more than half overboard. But my fingers clawed wildly and caught in the links of what must have been the anchor chain. They held, though a ton's weight seemed to be tugging at my feet. Then the old tub rolled back, the waters slipped off, and I was sprawling on a wet deck with no breath in me and a gallon of brine in my windpipe. I heard a voice cry out sharply, and a hand helped me to my feet. It was Gresson, and he seemed excited. "'God, Mr. Brand, that was a close call. I was coming up to find you, when this damned ship took the line on her side. I guess I must have cannoned into you, and I was calling myself bad names when I saw you rolling into the Atlantic. If I hadn't got a grip on the rope, I would have been down beside you. Say, you're not hurt? I reckon you'd better come below and get a glass of rum under your belt.' You're about as wet as a mother's dishclouts. There was one advantage about campaigning. You take your luck when it comes, and don't worry about what might have been. I didn't think any more of the business, except that it occurred me of wanting to be seasick. I went down to the reeking cabin without one qualm in my stomach, and ate a good meal of Welsh rabbit and bottled bass with a tot of rum to follow up with. Then I shed my wet garments and slept in my bunk till we anchored off a village in Mull on a clear blue morning. It took us four days to crawl up that coast and make Oban, for we seemed to be a floating general store for every hamlet in those parts. Gresson made himself very pleasant, as if he wanted to atone for nearly doing me in. We played some poker, and I read the little books I'd got in Kalanse, and then rigged up a fishing line. I'd caught safe and lift, and an occasional big haddock. But I found the time pass slowly, and I was glad that about noon one day we came to a bay blocked with islands and saw a clean little town sitting on the hills, and the smoke of a railway engine. I went ashore and purchased a better brand of hat in a tweed store. Then I made a beeline for the post office and asked for telegrams. One was given to me, and as I opened it I saw Gresson at my elbow. It ran thus. Brand, post office, Oban, page 117, paragraph 3. Octorloni. I passed it to Gresson with a rueful face. "'There's a piece of foolishness,' I said. "'I've got a cousin who's a Presbyterian minister up in Russia, "'and before I knew about this passport humbug, "'I wrote to him and offered to pay him a visit. "'I told him to wire me here if it was convenient, "'and the old idiot had sent me the wrong telegram. "'This was likely as not meant for some other brother parson, "'who's got my message instead.' "'What's the guy's name?' Gresson asked curiously, "'peering at the signature. "'Octorloni.' "'David Octorloni. "'He's a great swell at writing books, "'but he's no earthly use at handling the telegraph. "'However, it don't signify, "'seeing I'm not going near him.' "'I crumpled up the pink form "'and tossed it on the floor. "'Gresson and I walked to the Tobermory together. "'That afternoon, when I got a chance, "'I had out my Pilgrim's Progress, 
page 117, paragraph 3, which read, Then I saw in my dream that a little off the road, over against the silver mine, stood Demas, gentlemanlike, to call to passengers to come and see, who said to Christian and his fellow, Ho, turn aside hither, and I will show you a thing. At tea I led the talk to my own past life. I yarned about my experiences as a mining engineer, and said I could never get out of the trick of looking at country with the eye of the prospector. For instance, I said, if this had been Rhodesia, I would have said there was a good chance of copper in those little kopjes above the town. They're not unlike the hills around the Messina mine. I told the captain that after the war I was thinking of turning my attention to the West Highlands and looking out for minerals. You'll make nothing of it, said the captain. The costs are our big. Even if you found the minerals, for you'd have to import all your labor. The West Highlandman is not fond of hard work. You can the psalm or the crofter. Oh, that the peach would cut themselves, the fish chump on the shore, and that in my bed might be, henceforth, forevermore. Has it ever been tried? I asked. Often. There's marble and slate quarries, and there was word of coal in the Benbecula, and there's the iron mines at Rana. Where's that? I asked. Up for the sky. We call in there, and generally bide a bit. There's a heap of cargo for Rana and we usually get a good load back. But as I tell ye, there's few Highlanders working there, mostly Irish and lads from Fife and Falkirk Way. I didn't pursue the subject, for I had found Demas's silver mine. If the Tobermory lay at Rana for a week, Gresson would have time to do his own private business. Rana would not be the spot, for the island was bare to the world in the middle of a much-frequented channel. But Sky was just across the way, and when I looked in my map at its big, wandering peninsulas, I concluded that my guess had been right, and that sky was the place to make for. That night I sat on deck with Gresson, and in a wonderful starry silence we watched the lights die out of the houses in the town, and talked of a thousand things. I noticed what I had had a hint of before, that my companion was no common man. There were moments when he forgot himself and talked like an educated gentleman. Then he would remember, and relapse into the lingo of Leadville, Colorado. In my character of the ingenious inquirer, I sent him posers about politics and economics, the kind of thing I might have been supposed to pick up from unintelligent browsing among little books. Generally, he answered with some slangy catchword, but occasionally he was interested beyond his discretion and treated me to a harangue like an equal. I discovered another thing, that he had a craze for poetry and a capacious memory for it. I forgot how we drifted into the subject but I remember he quoted some queer haunting stuff which he said was Swinburne, and verses by people I heard of from Letchford at Biggleswick. Then he saw by my silence that he had gone too far, and fell back into the jargon of the West. He wanted to know about my plans, and we went down into the cabin and had a look at the map. I explained my route, up Morvern and round the head of Lochiel, and back to Oban by the east side of the Loch Linia. Gotcha, he said. "'You've a hell of a walk before you. "'That bug never bit me, "'and I guess I'm not envying you any. "'And after that, Mr. Brand? "'After that, I'm back to Glasgow. "'It doesn't work for the cause,' I said, lightly. "'Just so,' he said with a grin. "'It's a great life if you don't weaken.' "'We steamed out of the bay next morning at dawn, "'and about nine o'clock I got on shore "'at a little place called Lachaline. 
"'My kit was all on my person, "'and my waterproof pockets were stuffed with chocolates and biscuits I'd bought at Oban. "'The captain was discouraging. "'You'll get your belly full of Highland Hills, Mr. Bran, "'afar we, afar we win round the lockhead. "'You'll be wishing yourself back on the Tarbermory.' "'But Gresson speeded me joyfully on my way "'and said he wished he were coming with me. "'He even accompanied me the first hundred yards "'and waved his hat after me till I was round the turn of the road.' The first stage in that journey was pure delight. I was thankful to be rid of the infernal boat, and the hot summer scents coming down the glen were comforting after the cold, salt smell of the sea. The road lay up the side of a small bay, at the top of which a big white house stood among the gardens. Presently I had left the coast and was in a glen where a brown salmon river swirled through acres of bog myrtle. It had its source in a lock from which the mountain rose steeply. "'a place so glassy in that August forenoon "'that every scar and wrinkle of the hillside "'were faithfully reflected. "'After that I crossed a low pass "'to the head of another sea-lock, "'and, following the map, "'struck over the shoulder of a great hill "'and ate my luncheon far up on its side, "'with a wonderful vista of wood and water below me. "'All that morning I was very happy, "'not thinking about Gresson or Ivory, "'but getting my mind clear in those wide spaces "'and my lungs filled with the brisk hill air.' "'but I noticed one curious thing. "'On my last visit to Scotland, "'when I covered more moorland miles a day "'than any man since Claverhouse, "'I had been fascinated by the land "'and had pleased myself with plans "'for settling down in it. "'But now, after three years of war "'and general rocketing, "'I felt less drawn to that kind of landscape. "'I wanted something more green "'and peaceful and habitable, "'and it was to the Cotswolds "'that my memory turned with longing.' I puzzled over this till I realized that in all my Cotswold pictures a figure kept coming and going. A young girl with a cloud of gold hair and the strong, slim grace of a boy who had sung Cherry Ripe in a moonlit garden. Upon that hillside I understood very clearly that I, who had been as careless of women as any monk, had fallen wildly in love with a child of half my age. I was loath to admit it, though for weeks the conclusion had been forcing itself on me. Not that I didn't revel in my madness, but that it seemed too hopeless a business, and I had no use for barren philandering. But, seated on a rock munching chocolate and biscuits, I faced up to the fact and resolved to trust my luck. After all, we were comrades in a big job, and it was up to me to be man enough to win her. The thought seemed to brace any courage that was in me. No task seemed too hard with her approval to gain and her companionship somewhere at the back of it. I sat for a long time in a happy dream, remembering all the glimpses I had had of her, and humming her song to an audience of one black-faced sheep. On the high road half a mile below me, I saw a figure on a bicycle mounting the hill, and then getting off to mop its face at the summit. I turned my Zeiss glasses onto it, and observed that it was a country policeman. It caught sight of me, stared for a bit, tucked its machine into the side of the road, and then very slowly began to climb the hillside. Once it stopped, waved its hand, and shouted something which I could not hear. I sat, finishing my luncheon, till the features were revealed to me of a fat, oldish man, blowing like a grampus, his cap well on the back of a bald head, and his trousers tied about the shins with a string. There was a spring beside me, and I had out my flask to round off my meal. "'Have a drink?' I said. His eye brightened, and a smile overran his moist face. "'Thank you, sir.' It'll be very warm coming up the bray.
"'You oughtn't to,' I said. "'You really oughtn't, you know. "'Scorching up hills and then doubling up a mountain "'are not good for your time of life.' "'He raised the cap of my flask in solemn salutation. "'To your very good health. "'Then he smacked his lips "'and had several cupfuls of water from the spring. "'You will have come from a dronic way, maybe?' "'He said, in his soft sing-song, "'having at last found his breath. "'Just so. "'Fine weather for the birds, "'if there was anybody to shoot them. "'Ah, no. "'There will be a few shots fired today, "'for there are no gentlemen left in Morvern. "'But I was asking you, "'if you come from a chronic, "'if you have seen anybody on the road.' "'From his pocket he extricated a brown envelope "'in a bulky telegraph form. "'Will you read it for me, sir? "'For I forgot my spectacles.' "'It contained the description of one brand, "'a South African and a suspected character, "'whom the police were warned to stop "'and return to Oban. "'The description wasn't bad, "'for it lacked any one good distinctive detail. "'Clearly the policeman took me for an innocent pedestrian, "'probably the guest of some moorland shooting box.' "'with my brown face and rough tweeds and hobnailed shoes. "'I frowned and puzzled a little. "'I did see a fellow about three miles back on the hillside. "'There's a public house just where the burn comes in, "'and I think he was making for it. "'Maybe that was your man. "'This wire says, South African, "'and now I remember the fellow had the look of a colonial. "'The policeman sighed. "'Ah, no doubt that'll be the man. "'Perhaps he will have pistol and will shoot.' "'Not him,' I laughed. "'He looked a mangy sort of chap, "'and he'll be scared out of his senses at the sight of you. "'But take my advice and get somebody with you "'before you tackle him. "'You're always the better with a witness.' "'That is so,' he said, brightening. "'Ach, these are bad times. "'In old days there was nothing to do "'but watch the doors at the flower shows "'and keep the yachts from poaching the sea trout. "'But now it's spies, spies, "'and Donald, get out of your bed.' "'and go off twenty miles to find a German. "'I was wishing the war was by, "'and the Germans all dead. "'Here, here!' I cried, "'and on the strength of it gave him another dram. "'I accompanied him to the road "'and saw him mount his bicycle "'and zigzag like a snipe down the hill towards Akronik. "'Then I set off briskly northward. "'It was clear that the faster I moved, the better. "'As I went, I paid disgusted tribute "'to the efficiency of the Scottish police.' I wondered how on earth they'd marked me down. Perhaps it was the Glasgow meeting, or perhaps my association with Ivory Biggleswick. Anyhow, there was somebody somewhere mighty quick at compiling a dossier. Unless I wanted to be bundled back to Oban, I must make good speed to the Arasag coast. To the Arasag coast. Presently the road fell to a gleaming sea lock which lay like a blue blade of a sword among the purple of the hills. At the head there was a tiny clakin nestled among birches and rowans, where tawny burn wound to the sea. When I entered the place, it was about four o'clock in the afternoon, and peace lay on it like a garment. In the wide, sunny street there was no sign of life, and no sound except of hens clucking and of bees busy among the roses. There was a little grey box of a kirk, and close to the bridge a thatched cottage which bore the sign of a post and telegraph office. For the past hour I had been considering that I had better prepare for mishaps, if the police of these parts had been warned, they might prove too much for me, and Gresson would be allowed to make his journey unmatched. The only thing to do is to send a wire to Amos and leave the matter in his hands. Whether that was possible or not depended upon this remote postal authority. I entered the little shop 
I entered the little shop and passed from bright sunshine to a twilight smelling of, to a twilight smelling of paraffin and black-striped peppermint balls. An old woman with a mutch sat in an armchair behind the counter. She looked up at me over her spectacles and smiled, and I took to her on the instant. She had the kind of old wise face that God loves. Beside her I noticed a little pile of books, one of which was a Bible. Open on her lap was a paper, the United Free Church Monthly. I noticed these details greedily, for I had to make up my mind on the part to play. "'It's a warm day, mistress,' I said, my voice falling into the broad lowland speech, for I had an instinct that she was not of the highlands. She laid aside her paper. "'It is that, sir.' "'It is grand weather for the Hairst, but he'll that's not to the higher end of September, and at the best it's a bit scared to eats.' "'Aye, it's a different thing down Annandale way,' I said. Her face lit up. "'Are ye from Dumfries, sir? Not just from Dumfries, but I know the border's fine.' "'You'll no beat them,' she cried. "'Not that this isn't a good place, and I've muckled to be thankful for since John Sanderson. That was my man.' "'Brought me here forty-seven years in Comatmus, "'but the older I get, the more I think of the bit where I was born. "'It was twy miles from Waffrey on the Lockerbie Road, "'but they tell me the place is no just a rickle of stones. "'I was wondering, mistress, if I could get a cup of tea in the village.' "'You'll have a cup of tea with me,' she said. "'It's not often we see anybody from the borders hereaways. "'The kettle's just on a boil.' "'She gave me tea and scones and butter and black currant jam, and treacle biscuits that melted in my mouth. As we ate, we talked of many things, chiefly of the war and of the wickedness of the world. There's no laddies left here, she said. They had joined the Camerons, and the feck of them fell in an awful place called Lowe's. John and me never had no boys, just the one lassie that's married on Donald Prue, the Strontian carrier. I used to vex myself about it, but now I thank the Lord that in his mercy he spared me sorrow. "'but I would have liked to have had one laddie fetching for his country. "'I whiles wish I was Catholic and could put up prayers for the soldiers that are dead. "'It would be a great consolation.' "'I whipped out the Pilgrim's Progress from my pocket. "'That is the grand book for a time like this.' "'Fine, I get it,' she said. "'I got it for a prize in the Sabbath school when I was a lassie. "'I turned the pages. "'I read out a passage or two, "'and then I seemed struck with a sudden memory. "'This is the telegraph office, mistress.' "'Could I trouble you to send a telegram? "'You see, I have a cousin that's a minister in Rothshire at the Kyle, "'and him and me are great correspondents. "'He was writing about something in the Pilgrim's Progress, "'and I think I'll send him a telegram in answer.' "'Oh, a letter would be cheaper,' she said. "'Aye, but I'm on holiday, and I've no time for writing.' "'She gave me a form, and I wrote. "'Octorloney, Post Office, Kyle. "'Demas will be at his mind within the week. "'Strive with him.' lest I faint by the way. You're awful lavish with the words, sir, was her only comment. We parted with regret, and there was nearly a row when I tried to pay for the tea. I was bidden remember her to one David Tudhole, farmer in Nethermeyerclitch, the next time I passed by Womfrey. The village was as quiet when I left it as when I had entered. I took my way up the hill with an easier mind, for I had gotten off the telegram, and I hoped I had covered my tracks. My friend the postmistress would, if questioned, be unlikely to recognize any South African suspect in the frank and homely traveler who had spoken with her of Annandale and the Pilgrim's Progress. The soft mulberry gloaming of the west coast was beginning to fall on the hills. 
I hope to put in a dozen miles before dark to the next village on the map, where I might find quarters. But ere I had gone far, I heard the sound of a motor behind me, and a car slipped past bearing three men. The driver favored me with a sharp glance and clapped on the brakes. I noted that the two men in the tonneau were carrying sporting rifles. "'Hey, you, sir!' he cried. "'Come here!' The two rifle-bearers, solemn gillies, brought their weapons to attention. "'By God!' he said. "'It's the man. What's your name? Keep him covered, Angus.' The gillies duly covered me, and I did not like the look of their wavering barrels. They were obviously as surprised as myself. I had about half a second to make my plans. I advanced with a very stiff air and asked him what the devil he meant. No lowland Scots for me now. My tone was that of an adjutant of a guard's battalion. My inquisitor was a tall man in an ulster, with a green felt hat on his small head. He had a lean, well-bred face, and very choleric blue eyes. I set him down as a soldier, retired. Highland regiment or cavalry, old style. He produced a telegraph form, like the policeman. Middle height, strongly built, gray tweeds, brown hat, speaks with a colonial accent, much sunburnt. What's your name, sir? I did not reply in a colonial accent, but with the hauteur of a British officer when stopped by a French sentry. I asked him again what the devil he had to do with my business. This made him angry, and he began to stammer. I'll teach you what I have to do with it. I'm a deputy lieutenant of this county, and I have admiralty instructions to watch the coast. Damn it, sir. I've a wire here from the chief constable describing you. You're Brand, a very dangerous fellow, and we want to know what the devil you're doing here. As I looked at his wrathful eye and lean head, which could not have held much brains, I saw that I must change my tone. If I irritated him, he would get nasty and refuse to listen and hang me up for hours. So my voice became respectful. I beg your pardon, sir, but I've not been accustomed to be pulled up suddenly and asked for my credentials. My name is Blakey, Captain Robert Blakey of the Scots Fusiliers. I'm home on three weeks' leave to get a little peace after hooge. We were only hauled out five days ago. I hoped my old friend in the shell-shock hospital at Isham would pardon my borrowing his identity. The man looked puzzled. How the devil am I to be satisfied about that? Have you any papers to prove it? I don't carry passports about with me on a walking tour, but you can wire to the depot or to my London address. He pulled at his yellow mustache. I'm hanged if I know what to do. I want to get home for dinner. I tell you what, sir. I'll take you on with me and put you up for the night. My boy's at home, convalescing, and if he says you're puka, I'll ask your pardon and give you a dashed good bottle of port. I'll trust him, and I warn you he's a keen lad. There was nothing to do but consent, and I got in beside him with an uneasy conscience. Supposing the son knew the real Blakey. I asked the name of the boy's battalion, and was told the 10th Seaforths. That wasn't pleasant hearing, for they'd been brigaded with us on the Somme. But Colonel Broadberry, for he told me his name, volunteered another piece of news which set my mind at rest. The boy was not yet twenty, and had only been out seven months. At Arras, he'd got a bit of shrapnel in his thigh, which had played the deuce with his sciatic nerve, and he was still on crutches. We spun over ridges of moorland, always keeping northward, and brought up at a pleasant whitewashed house close to the sea. Colonel Broadberry ushered me into a hall where a small fire of peach was burning, and on a couch beside it lay a slim, pale-faced young man. He had dropped his policeman's manner and behaved like a gentleman. "'Ted,' he said, 
"'I've brought a friend home for the night. "'I went out to look for a suspect "'and found a British officer. "'This is Captain Blakey of the Scott Fusiliers.' "'The boy looked at me pleasantly. "'I'm very glad to meet you, sir. "'You'll excuse me for not getting up, "'but I've got a game leg.' "'He was the copy of his father in features, "'but dark and sallow where the other was blonde. "'He had just the same narrow head "'and stubborn mouth and honest, quick-tempered eyes. "'It is the type that makes dashing regimental officers "'and earns VCs and gets done in wholesale. "'I was never that kind. "'I belonged to the school of the cunning cowards.' In the half-hour before dinner, the last wisp of suspicion fled from my host's mind, for Ted Broadberry and I were immediately deep in shop. I had met most of his senior officers, and I knew all about their doings at Iris, for his brigade had been across the river on my left. We fought the great fight over again, and yarned about technicalities and slanged the staff in the way young officers have, the father throwing in questions that showed how mighty proud he was of his son. I had a bath before dinner, and as he led me to the bathroom, he apologized very handsomely for his bad manners. Your coming's been a godsend for Ted. He was moping a bit in this place, and though I say that it shouldn't, he's a dashed good boy. I had my promised bottle of port, and after dinner I took on the father at billiards. Then we settled in the smoking room, and I laid myself out to entertain the pair. The result was that they would have me stay a week, but I spoke of the shortness of my leave, "'and said I must get on to the railway "'and then back to Fort William for my luggage. "'So I spent that night between clean sheets "'and ate a Christian breakfast "'and was given my host's car "'to set me a bit on the road. "'I dismissed it after half a dozen miles "'and, following the map, "'struck over the hills to the west. "'About midday I topped a ridge "'and beheld the sound of sleet shining beneath me. "'There were other things in the landscape. "'In the valley on the right, a long train of goods was crawling on the Maylake Railway, and across the strip of sea, like some fortress of the old gods, rose the dark bastions and turrets of the hills of sky. Thanks for joining us for Mr. Standfast by John Buchan. Be sure to tune in next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for Chapter 6, The Skirts of the Coolin. Until then, everyone, this is your host, John Hagedorn. Stay safe. And we'll be back soon.